I designed the set, then I've got lots of draftsmen, all of whom are very good, and uh, they draw it up from uh, my sketch usually. Then uh, you talk to them when they do, they're all very skilled uh, people, uh, and uh, a lot of knowledge, a lot of taste, and you, you work with them, and then they, of course, have ideas and say, well, I suppose we did that, and go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Or what about do we do that? Say no, because George has said he definitely wants it to be a low door, so we've got to keep that low. Then this will be the reverse. So, so you talk about all that on the drafting stage. Of course, things happen that you wish hadn't, of course, because you maybe were a bit too hurried or too hasty. The most difficult part of designing uh, for a film is to create a kind of immaculate reality. Uh, and that is doubly difficult when you're dealing with an environment that doesn't exist. fans, Moof Milkers everywhere, welcome to episode number 154 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. This week we're going to be going into the story of one of the greatest and most important unsung heroes of Star Wars, production designer John Barry and his crew. It's, it's a name not mentioned enough in Star Wars histories. Vitally responsible for so much of what we love about Star Wars. And we're going to be going into his whole history, Star Wars production design, all of that fun stuff coming up. But first, we got to go into the news. Episode 9. dark times when we're getting close to episode nine but we're not close enough to get any real info so we're stuck looking at pictures on reddit it's like we say all the time the storm is coming we're standing in the field in like a cornfield like in smallville or something look paul here comes a twister <laughs> here comes a tornado we're we're so desperate. We're basically obsessing over a photograph of a bottle of sand and a jar of beans <laughs> that somebody's apparently's brother or someone works on the movie and got the official 
crew gift from JJ with an episode nine bag and a bad robot t-shirt, but added his own gifts, which is a jar of sand and a bottle of beans. And we can't stop thinking about what did the beans in the sand mean? What are they telling us? You know, there was like a good 24 hour period where people were freaking out because the sand had a little tag on it that said from a long, long time ago, not so far away. And then the little jar of black beans had a little tag on it that said, swallow you up whole. And people were like, well, what does it mean? Uh, yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, it doesn't mean anything, but uh, yeah, like there was a good period of time there where we were like, is there a black bean? Are, are you telling me that there's a black bean planet in episode nine? Maybe they go to a nice planet that's chilly. They go back to Mustafar and, and it's red and there's red beans. And then the next they're going to get a jar of rice. <laughs> Crate had a salt planet. So we're just one step away. You know, where do you go next after salt? Black beans. Okay. Why not? It's, you know, episode nine. Why not? Black beans. We're going to find out once episode nine comes out that all the movies were really just a secret recipe to make like the most delicious meal. All the clues have been here all these years. Ray has to have a meeting with Kylo Ren on the planet Chipotle. (laughs) They're out of guacamole. What does it mean? Michael Guacamole, I don't know. Yeah, we're going a, we're going a little crazy here. Okay, we're probably going to get the title any day now. Like any day now. Like weeks, days, hours, minutes. The title is probably good. They got to tell us the title soon, right? They don't have to tell do anything. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. We've been obsessing over jars of beans and sand and they didn't even like they're not they didn't even make the beans and sand, so I don't know. Maybe they'll just make us wait till celebration for everything. If Bad Robot is handing out, thank you, everyone that worked on this movie gifts. Here's here's my guess. We're going to get an announcement saying filming is done on episode nine, like an official announcement on StarWars.com. And here's the title. Stay tuned to StarWars.com for more updates. Trailer in April at Celebration. Maybe it's called like episode nine. It's being fun. <laughs> it's been a good time. <laughs> Jabba, you're a wonderful human being. I'm the only human being that can do it. Star Wars Episode 9, Black Beans. It was Black Diamond before, so that's only a short jump over to now you're in Black Bean territory. Does this mean that we can have like a nacho bar buffet at Celebration? If we, can we go full Black Bean level? JJ and Kathleen Kennedy gave out what pizzas at for Force Awakens, so maybe JJ's going to be giving out like bean burritos and tacos in line at this celebration. That line <laughs> by about five thirty six a.m. had a very distinct odor. <laughs> if, if they start handing out bean burritos, <laughs> highway to the danger zone. The McCormick Place is is a much larger convention center so there's maybe there's more air and ventilation it won't it won't be a problem maybe that was one of the reasons they decided to go to chicago because they're like we really want to hand out these bean burritos and we just we got to have the right ventilation for it it's gonna be cold out you can't open the windows maybe i don't know maybe so yeah that's our episode nine news about 
the Resistance trailer that we're all hyped for that you'll have seen the new episode by the time this episode comes out. We're waiting for episode nine title or anything so patiently. And I feel like there was like the talk of like, oh, well, we'll get a trailer for the second half of the first season of Resistance. And I feel like there were a lot of people who were just like, don't care. (laughs) But then, you know, the trailer, the trailer comes out and it's like, well, well, well. Look at you, Resistance. Look at what's going on here. Yeah. That is the fourth TIE Fighter to arrive here this week. You have such a tremendous interest in the First Order. Now that they are increasing their security presence on the Colossus, you must be thrilled. These guys aren't security. They're stormtroopers, and stormtroopers are only for one thing. Well, when we got the announcement that, which comes as no surprise, I think, to anyone, that there's going to be a Resistance Season 2 which is good to hear, but I got to think at this point they're going to be, before they un- release a new Star Wars show, they're probably pretty confident they're going <laughs> to do more than one season. But yeah, the trailer looks good. I mean, it's kind of what I think we assumed was going to happen, and it's kind of nice to see that it's happening and maybe faster than we thought, right? That at some point this season they're going to be caught up to Force Awakens and what two days after that they're in the last jedi so i mean yeah right in the trailer there's animated hux giving his big awesome speech all remaining systems will bow to the first order and will remember this as the last day of the republic it's it's crazy watching that that like thinking while Hux is giving that speech, like Ray just had her vision quest with the lightsaber. Finn just thought about leaving and, you know, they're teamed up with Han Solo at this point. And Kylo Ren is about to come to Takodana and Force Awakens is going on while this is happening. And that's really kind of exciting and cool to think about. And, makes the whole idea, especially of season two of Resistance, really, really interesting and kind of makes me rethink what I was thinking about some of the first half of season. I mean, we talked about, you know, goofy Kaz and slipping and sliding on banana peels and a lot of the first half of season one of Resistance. But I don't know, especially in kind of the the second half we saw, Kaz kind of seems like he's kind of pulling it together a little bit. I don't know. Maybe something happened with his parents on Hosnian Prime. I think it's a good bet that it did, but seems pretty cool. Yeah, it's kind of neat to see it coming together where it does feel like they kind of set the first half of the season up to almost kind of lull you into, okay, there's just these goofy characters, and then you kind of get a feel for the station and the people, and then all of a sudden going into the second half, it's like the First Order is going to kick it up and then it's going to get serious for everybody and it looks like we're going to get the racers eventually becoming their own little resistance that are going to be fighting back against the first order and even though it's a kids show yeah people are probably gonna know people that are dying because of the first order and kind of kicking them into gear to fight back we are the resistance now and we're taking back the colossus hit it Cal. when the when the first half of the season got silly or a little wacky it's gonna make all of that have a completely different feel when you go back and watch all of probably season one at this point when it's all said and done i mean never count out star wars animation that's the one thing i think we learned with rebels and as much as i walked up and down the street 
yelling at strangers about how much Ezra Bridger bugged me on a given week. At the end of the day, I'm down with Ezra Bridger. You know, tell me more about him out in space with Thrawn and, and the whales. It's like Godfather 3. <laughs> Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. And it, and it all works out. It all pays off in the end. <laughs> Kaz, I'd fight alongside you any day. That is a truly amazing plan. I like, too, that animated Hux kind of looks like a young Kennedy a little more than real live action Hux. So you can kind of almost pretend it's a young Kennedy. I would love to see so much more animated Hux. Maybe we will. Maybe, you know, we could get post Last Jedi animated Hux. Like, how cool would that be in season two of Resistance if just animated Hux shows up? At the station, and he's talking about his supreme leader, and we're like, he's talking about Kylo Ren. Well, I'm curious too. With we know BB 8's a big part of the show, but at some point, Poe's gonna have to show up and be like, What BB 8, you gotta come with me? We gotta go see, Lor- we gotta go see Lor Santeca. Oh, yeah, and people are gonna be high fiving birds out their window, doing a backflip, <laughs> sitting on the roof. Fist bumping eagles. Get a box of cereal out of the closet, dump it all out, and put it over your put put the box on your head. Open your door and invite squirrels in to watch Resistance with you. Come, children, come! <laughs> it's a good show. Uh, he's going to see Lars Anteca. Just transcend, become a being of pure light. By the end of season one, we're at least at Force Awakens time, right? Season two won't be out until after Episode nine, right? Or was it going to come out right before episode nine? It would be kind of awesome if it premiered in the fall of 2019 as a really incredibly awesome lead up to episode nine. Because, yeah, because Resistance started at the end of last year. So I wonder, yeah, if they did kind of plan it better and Rebels kind of seemed like they wanted to set up Rogue One, but then it didn't work out where they were willing to or able to show the stuff leading up to Rogue One until after Rogue One was out. But yeah, that would be interesting if we get the first half of season two being at the same time as Last Jedi and maybe a little bit heading into episode nine, which is crazy to think because we got that with the Clone Wars, but we'd already seen episode three before we got the time. And this would be our first time getting kind of the in-between time maybe before the next movie came out, right? They're going to tell us all this stuff at Celebration, and we're all going to (laughs) die. I'm going to write an album of love songs to Star Wars Resistance if that happens. I'm sorry. I kind of wasn't 100% with you last year. I was at like 80%. I was still watching. Don't worry. But now I love you. <laughs> and you love me too. I don't know. It's only January and 2019 is already off to a good start and it's not going to stop. That's the that's the one thing we know it's not going to stop. Star Space Station that you put together. Action figures each sold separately. Darth Vader's firing a laser cannon. It's been hit. He's at the low. Take the elevator. Hurry. Now cross the light bridge. You won't escape me. Jump, Luke. Oh, no. The trash compactor. There's a trash monster. 
Kenner's new Star Wars Death Star Space Station. Action figures each sold separately. One of the biggest challenges with doing a Star Wars film is that everything in the movie has to be designed. Everything from the forks and the tables to the costumes uh, to the dwellings they live in to the culture itself. What kind of a culture it is, what kind of artifacts do they have? And it's a very big job because every little minute detail has to be thought through. All right. So like we were saying in the beginning of the episode, in the long list of great unsung heroes in Star Wars history, John Barry's name has to be on there because he's so responsible for so much about what we love. But he's just not mentioned a whole lot when people talk about Star Wars and like the the influencing visions of what made this whole weird, crazy thing. You don't hear John Barry's name come up as much as you sh- it should. Part of it is there's the other John Barry who's pretty famous, the composer who composed the James Bond theme and a lot of classic movie scores. The music in the uh, fantastic Star Wars-esque film Star Crash. The big thing I wonder if it's just kind of like Richard Marquand is the fact that he just he died so early and kind of suddenly that he was not around to just kind of be in the limelight or to be in making of things and be in promotional things and be talked about. It was kind of like he came in, made a huge mark on the look of Star Wars and then, you know, unfortunately passed away kind of before he could kind of reap the the rewards and the, the credit or fame or just kind of notoriety that comes with being associated with Star Wars. Yeah. And one thing Star Wars is, is known for it's very particular look that you hear it mentioned all the time, that used universe look. It gets thrown around a lot, the used future, all that stuff. But it's like it's more than that. It's more than like, I don't know, stuff's dirty. <laughs> Everything looks kind of dirty. It's not like Star Trek. It's it's a believability that other universes and other science fiction films of that time did not have. I, I think that sometimes like that believability that Star Wars seems like a real place or these planets seem like you could go there. I think I think that's part of why people are so excited about Galaxy's Edge, because it's like somewhere in our minds, we always thought we could go to Star Wars. It's like the preview somewhere in space. This is all really happening somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. The idea that you can just go to Star Wars land in Orlando or Anaheim just makes total sense. It's, yeah, we can go there. I think a lot of that is because of the influence of John Barry. Yeah, and another, I think, big contribution with him is also, I mean, everyone thinks of the dirty part of Star Wars, but part of the look of Star Wars is the contrast between the dirty, cobbled-together look of the Rebellion and the contrast with the kind of clinical, cold, very simplistic look of the Empire. All that look really stems from the original Death Star sets that he designed with the, you know, the iconic holes in the wall that the light comes out of. Those awesome strips. <laughs> yeah, the like the strips and of lights that I mean is still to this day the First Order looks like the First Order because they have the same sort of design. It's like you can basically put that pattern in white on a wall and you're like, oh that's Star Wars. And it's like it's just ovals, <laughs> you know, it's like a bunch of tubes and you're like, oh, I know that Star Wars. And that simplicity contrasted with the just 
over the top amount of pipes and tubes and hoses and parts from airplanes that they kind of cobbled together to make the rebel stuff. It's like, you know, it's star Wars when you see it Well, before star Wars. I mean, what was the, the science fiction of the 1960s and in movies you had, the biggest one was 2001, which was very clean, very pristine. You had Barbarella, which was more, science fantasy but it was also you know very bright colors and real wild and crazy you had fantastic voyage which also was very bright and you had planet of the apes which you know the ape village was pretty dirty and grimy but all this stuff like with the astronauts in the beginning was pretty slick and pretty silver and and then kind of as you get into the 70s you had silent running which got a little bit dirtier a little bit funkier and you had uh john carpenter's criminally underseen uh dark star which is very funky, very weird, very dirty, very cramped looking. And those moved away from kind of the sci-fi look of the 60s, but still nothing, neither of those had the impact that Star Wars did. Star Wars comes along in 1977, and as we know, changes everything. You know, who's responsible for that? You got mainly George Lucas's vision, but you also got the concept people, Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston. But a lot of the time when John Barry was working on his designs for the sets he was working side by side with macquarie and johnston trying to coordinate everything they're doing with what he was doing well and then also there was the his team with what art directors what norman reynolds and leslie dilly and roger christian who was a set decorator so yeah how did all this come to be how did john barry assemble this team how did he come on to star wars it started in the spring of 1975 and just as ilm is just starting to begin and macquarie is working with colin cantwell designing what the heck tie fighters are going to look like gary kurtz was going around looking for a suitable production designer for star wars and he interviewed this guy anthony masters who worked on robert altman's buffalo bill and the indians who funny enough later went on to do the production design for david lynch's dune he was the art director for Lawrence of Arabia and the production designer for 2001. I mean, he would have been a good choice, I feel like. But meanwhile, George Lucas's friends, Gloria Katz and Willard Hyuk, I never know how to pronounce that last name, so I'm trying that out. <laughs> They're in Mexico working on a film they wrote called Lucky Lady, which has a bizarre sideways relationship with Star Wars, this movie Lucky Lady. And it stars Gene Hackman, Liza Minnelli, and Burt Reynolds. It's a gigantic movie. It's a 20th Century Fox movie with big sets, big stars. Lucas basically goes down there to see how, how, how do you make one of these big movie things? I've only done graffiti and THX. And, and he's down there and he's talking to people on the set. And the production designer for that movie is John Barry. John Barry was born born in London in 1935. He was a craftsman on Cleopatra. Uh, Kubrick actually offered him the job to be the production designer on his unmade Napoleon movie, which would have been incredible. And he worked with Kubrick on Clockwork Orange, and he started talking to Lucas on the set of Lucky Lady, and they just kind of started to hit it off. And Lucas was telling him about this crazy movie I got going on. It's like a Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon kind of thing. And John Barry was like, I'm interested. Let's talk. And also working on the set of Lucky Lady under John Barry was Roger Christian. 20th Century Fox said, um, are you interested in a film we're doing in Mexico? 
uh, Les Dillies out there and Norman Reynolds with John Barry, they need help. This film has got huge. So I was dressing a salt factory and I was shoveling this, the salt when a car arrived and out got George in his plaid shirt, jeans and sneakers and Gary in a cowboy hat. They walked over to me and introduced themselves. George said, what are you doing? This is amazing, what's the look of this? And I showed him, he, he hadn't realized it was fake. We'd built it on the front of an old building. And George helped me, he got a shovel. So we're shoveling salt, talking about science fiction. And I said, you know, I. I love science fiction and I really despair about the films that have been made so far. They're, they think you have to have plastic guns that go beep and the sets look completely unreal. I said, I see it like an old car that's dripping oil in a garage that's been repaired. And he said, that's what I'm making. So spring of 75 comes around and cameras are set to start going in February 76 for Star Wars. Barry and Lucas have a meeting, and Lucas uh, and Barry says he needs seven months minimum, which is literally all he had to pull it off. And he took the job, and Lucas is going through the whole script of Star Wars, which is, I think at this time, like in the third draft or something. It's still crazy town in that script. And as he's going through, going scene by scene, Barry is sketching ideas of sets based on just what Lucas is describing. I mean, just imagine what that conversation must have been like. <laughs> I like the, I can't remember the exact quote from John Barry, but basically how he said he had enough experience that he figured he could do it, but he didn't have enough experience to know that he shouldn't do it. Basically that he was like right in the sweet spot of being optimistic enough that he thought he could take on a movie like this, but he didn't know enough to know better than to do it. So it's kind of a perfect timing. So in August of 1975, Barry officially starts working in the UK and one of his first jobs is to figure out how to build a land speeder and start working with John Steers making droids. <laughs> so based on Ralph McQuarrie's designs, they start to make the very first R2-D2 out of cardboard. Golden days. <laughs> Not a bad way to start a job, though. Work increases. The <laughs> art department staffs up to about 25, 30 people. He hires a guy that he worked with, uh, Harry Lang, who did a lot of the panels in 2001 to make panels for all the ships. He hires Liz Moore, who ended up building the Landspeeder and also did a lot of the work building uh, C-3PO. So basically, he hires all these people to kind of delegate jobs so he can focus more on the sets. And all this time, too, he's still going over the script constantly with Lucas and According to J.W. Rinsler's Making of Star Wars book, Barry had a lot of good suggestions for things they could do in the script. Yeah, didn't he come up with the, uh, or he suggested the um, the rope swing, right, in the Death Star? Was one of his ideas. Originally, that scene was still set on Alderaan in whatever draft this was. But yeah, the whole retracting bridge and going across was all John Barry's suggestion. <laughs> So as we move into like the fall of 1975, the fantastic Robert Watts starts, uh, Roger Christian and uh, Leslie Dilley start. They went out getting Elstree Studios for the giant amount of sets they need to build. Now, around all this whole time, though, 20th Century Fox has not firmly committed to a budget for the sets. And also around this time, the budget of Star Wars, of money that's already been spent before filming's already begun, 
is soaring. ILM is off in San Francisco doing God knows what, building cameras and <laughs> working on something called the Dy- Dykster Flex. Don't even ask what it is. Yeah. They're building droids. Kind of understandably, as we've talked about on this show many times before, 20th Century Fox started to get really nervous. So Lucas keeps doing drafts to lower the budget. I, Industrial Light and Magic's bill, weekly bill, was $25,000 a week. And they had no shots completed. Fall goes into the new year of 1976. Filming is set to begin in weeks. And Fox cuts 10% of John Barry's art department budget without consulting him, without telling him. And this results in Lucas and John Barry going through the whole script together and all the blueprints, all the plans they had of what they're about to begin and just cutting tons of stuff. How could they cheat? What could they do? How could they do camera angles? How could they make compromises? Which ultimately ends up being a good thing in a way because it kind of forced them to trim the movie down even more, which helped kind of solidify the look that you know we ultimately associate with Star Wars. And if they would have had a little more time and money, we may have gotten a very different looking Star Wars than, than we're used to. I think a great example is originally... Ben Kenobi's hut was supposed to be this like giant three-story cave. Through cutting the budget, they're like, well, I guess he's just going to live in like a little basically stone igloo that has like a couch and a chest in it. And that's it. Well, and they even go so far as saying it, it, they wanted to make sure it had big windows in it so that it would make it quicker to light it because they could just have the light from outside coming in through the windows. A lot of what is defined today as that Star Wars look, that's where that all was born. And that's how, you know, many people, when they talk about that Star Wars look, that's what they're talking about. Like, it's something that after Phantom Menace came out and some of the people that weren't as into it, a lot of the complaints you heard, well, it just didn't feel like Star Wars. It didn't look like Star Wars. But even Anakin and Shmi's house, their little hut in... Mos Espa kind of was more pared down. It was more John Barry. And even the the slave quarters where Shmi and Qui-Gon have their little talk, like like we were talking about last week, I raised him, I cured him, I don't know what happened. That was something that John Barry scouted in Tunisia and was originally intended to be in A New Hope. And there was like a whole scene that like where Lucas is there. It was going to be like a scene with the Jawas coming out of those little hovels. And it was like, it's going to be a big Jawa scene. Love them coming out. It's going to be the greatest thing anybody ever saw. Well, you know, they had to cut this whole Jawa scene. And then when he's writing Phantom Menace, you know, I can put that place back in there. Well, what's kind of neat, too, is how potentially these early changes kind of snowball and may ultimately affect kind of how the characters are, too. Because it's like everything you kind of know and feel about Ben Kenobi, I think, would feel a lot different if when Luke goes to his house, he was in this big three-story mansion space cave as opposed to living in this humble little hut with you know no glass in the windows it's neat how some of these decisions you know that are weren't even intentional kind of ultimately shape not just the look of the film but the feel of the film and how the the characters are ultimately portrayed and how that then carries on into empire strikes back and into return of the jedi and into the prequels and now into the sequels it's like 
it all started here because they cut the budget. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because 20th Century Fox was afraid it was going to be another lucky lady. Like we always talk about in the build-up to Force Awakens, there was the real sets, practical effects. Don't worry, you know. Well, what are you talking about there? I mean, you're talking then about the original trilogy, and you're talking about the work John Barry did or originated in the original film. You know, I mean, the prequels had a whole lot of real sets, but anyway, that's another thing. But And now it's an interesting situation they're in with the sequels films and the spinoffs and everything else and TV shows. Because you've got the technological advances of the prequels and more, but also the, the feeling to bring it back down to that John Barry kind of the budget got cut kind of attitude. Well, yeah, because I want to say for Force Awakens, when they were designing the sets for Starkiller Base... I believe they intentionally kind of built them in the modular fashion that that John Barry designed the original Death Star sets, where it's you know it's all some hallways and some a couple corridors, and they can just reconfigure them to look like all these different parts of the same location. But in reality, it's just a small amount of pieces, which makes production and filming a lot faster. But it's also now an aesthetic part of Star Wars. This kind of necessity to do something fast and cheap is now. Just the aesthetic that even if they don't have to be fast and cheap, they're still going to make it look that way because that's what people identify with Star Wars. Well, and around this time with the fast and cheap, because of budget necessity for a lot of the props that had to be built. I mean, all the lightsabers, all the blasters. John Barry and Roger Christian especially were tasked to go out and go to junk places, go to junk dealers, go to Watto, be be Ray, be scavengers, you know, like go to antique stores all throughout London. You know, we we don't have the money or materials to build a lightsaber prop out of metal. So let's just go get some camera parts and (laughs) slap it together and there's your lightsaber. I had this idea of getting a lot of uh, junk. I, we bought 15,000 pounds worth of wrecked aeroplanes and took it to pieces and then used those pieces, which are in themselves very interesting, to build, for instance, um, the bar in uh, where they uh, meet Han Solo. The whole of the bar back is all built of old jet engines, uh, lacquered gold. Well, it's neat that they basically talk about how at the time they were filming, it was far enough since World War II that there was just World War II engines in junkyards from all the planes from the war, and they could buy them for, like, nothing. Nobody wanted them. So they would just buy all these old airplane engines and take them apart and then kind of organize the pieces by size and how they looked, and that was the starting point for all sorts of things from what the insides of ships, some of the stuff ended up on the blasters, the lightsabers. It saved time and money but it also made anything that was kind of cobbled together by these pieces believable because they were made out of real things that someone took the time to design for a real purpose so it wasn't just like nonsense that sci-fi stuff can kind of look like sometimes it was like oh yeah those all look that looks plausible because i've seen those shapes i've seen those things before so all this time sets are being built in the uk while ships and effects stuff is going on on the other side of the world in San Francisco, which in, in Rinzer's book, Barry talks about how difficult this was. Because, you know, just imagine, like, I think of this, the part in A New Hope when the Falcon's going in the tractor beam in the Death Star. And that's all effects. And then you have a real Death Star set 
just in the next scene with a bunch of stormtroopers and Darth Vader walking up in the scanning crew. And that's got to match what these bearded goofballs are doing over in San Francisco. And they're building so many sets. Like, how many sets did they build for A New Hope? Like, what was the, what was the final count? It sounds like they ultimately had a hundred sets, but those hundred sets were built out of pieces for 40 sets. As we're saying, one of the, the, the genius things with John Barry wasn't just that he was a creative guy, an artistic guy. He could design good-looking things. He was also very good at designing functional things that could be reused in multiple ways, could be reconfigured in multiple ways. And also some of the designs, I think like an example is the um, the tracks on the Jawa Sandcrawler. When they actually built the physical set, they built them in ways where they could come apart and be packed into a truck. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how beautiful a set looks if you can't get it out in the desert where you need to film it it doesn't do anyone any good so he was he had that mix of creativity artisticness and just i guess practicality of able to design things that just worked in addition to being aesthetically pleasing if you just think about the death star alone just in the movie like i started making a list of all the sets you see in the death star I feel like I'm forgetting something, but there's there's the control room, there's the hangar bay, there's the conference room, there's the prison, there's the war room, there's hallways, there's the elevator, there's the trash compactor, the garbage room. That's a lot of sets that all have to follow the same general aesthetic of this Death Star. And that all just had to be kind of just made up. That's crazy. <laughs> well, what's cool, too, is like a lot of the stuff again, that you associate with the Star Wars look is just a way to do things like having a black, shiny floor, which we just when you think of the Empire, you think of black, shiny floors. The main purpose of the black, shiny floor is it reflects the walls and the ceiling and effectively gives you a really cool looking ground without having to build like you don't have to build anything. Right. It's just it's basically you're walking on a mirror and it's reflecting the, the other set pieces. So you're only building half of the set in a way and then you're just reflecting it from the floor. And it just, it looks cool without doing any more work. It's basically just, you know, black paint, shiny black paint on a flat floor. But you put the lights on the wall panels next to it and other things. And all of a sudden it just, it looks really, it looks futuristic. It looks cool. It looks oppressive. And it's black paint. It's movie magic. Movie magic, love. So we all know the this, this story with A New Hope. It's going horribly. <laughs> like Fox eventually visits the set, and they're freaking out, and everybody's blaming everybody else. And there's droids that don't work. Lucas has his nervous breakdown. And June of 76, like almost a year before the, the movie comes out, they're filming some of the last scenes to be filmed in, in the Star Wars of the the Rebel Blockade Runner, basically the whole opening of the movie. It's, you know, comparing it to like you were just saying with like the black, it's the stark whiteness of the the blockade runner. And starting the movie that way after, you know, we start out in the blackness of space and this blast of white in our face. It's, I, don't know, I still love all that opening. And it was, I remember seeing it again in Rogue One. It was so cool. And it's just like, oh, 
God, this looks good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and it's the same kind of sort of thing. It's just, you know, it's like a little piece of wall that's kind of copied over and over again in a shiny floor and throw some lights in there and it just, it looks great and it's real, but it's really simple. And that's, that's the Star Wars look. I think it, that whole part too is really fascinating that originally they were supposed to film that opening scene in a redressed middle of the, it was the Millennium Falcon set basically, right? The, the middle of the Falcon, the like cargo room where the chest set is and everything like that was going to be the basis of the blockade runner for that intro scene until the last minute. And Lucas was like, no, we, we need another set. <laughs> we, we can't do all, all these pages of script and all this action in this, this small space. that's just going to look the same as the Falcon. And I think that was designed and built like right, right at the very end. Cause that was, those are the last, some of the last scenes they shot. Well, amazingly, as we know, it all comes together. The weird miracle that is Star Wars. You get the special effects in there, the sound effects, John Williams score, George Lucas's knack for editing and help from Marsha and Richard Chu and Paul Hirsch. And the movie works, obviously, and 78 Oscars, John Barry and Norman Reynolds and Leslie Dilley and Roger Christian all win for art direction and set decoration. We're very pleased to accept this beautiful award on behalf of all our friends and patriots who worked so hard to make the sets of Star Wars a success. And there's one man whose name should be engraved on this above everybody else and whose name should be on every frame of Star Wars, and that's George Lucas. Thank you, George. We move into 78, and they're starting to get ready for Empire. And Barry is asked to come back to do production design for The Empire Strikes Back. And he's like, I kind of want to. And he does some location scouting with Robert Watts. And they're looking for places for a snow planet. And they're looking, maybe thinking about doing Dagobah, which they call the bog planet, and on a real location. And they're trying to scout for that. But Barry wanted to make his own film that he wrote and he wanted to direct called Saturn Three, which if you don't know Saturn Three. It's a weird one, man. It's not really great. If you see the the VHS box cover, you'll recognize it. It's like a robot staying in a hallway. And so eventually he's like, yeah, I can't do it because I got funding approved to go make this the weird movie Saturn 3 with Kirk Douglas. And I don't know what happened. It was some kind of disagreement with Kirk Douglas or the producers or something. And he gets fired from Saturn 3. And he immediately gets hired on The Empire Strikes Back as a second unit director. And his quote in Rinsler's Making of Empire book is that he said he felt like it was coming home. And he filmed a ton of stuff in the Echo Base on Hoth. I think the whole part with um, Luke and Dak taking off, like, feeling all right, sir? Just like new Dak. I think all of that was uh, shot by Barry. And they say in that book a lot of those shots that still are in The Empire Strikes Back, those were John Barry's shots. He filmed them. So kind of the end of May, Barry shows up on the set. He doesn't feel good, and he collapses. He's taken to a hospital where he's got a 105-degree fever. And the next night, he passes away from infectious meningitis, which they're saying like was weird that no one else on the set got sick. But I guess John Barry had a hatred of doctors and hospitals. <laughs> it's something that could have been treated, and he could have been okay. But Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that, Empire and Jedi turned out all right, but you know, how would things have looked different if he would have 
survived and finished Empire and went on to work on Jedi or would they look the same? Because Jedi definitely kept the feel and look for the Empire stuff that was kind of set up in the first two films. So, you know, would he have stuck with the look they came up with or because he had would have been there the whole time, would he have kind of pushed for a different look for Jedi? I guess we'll never know. But, you know, and in a way, like we we're saying earlier in the episode, his designs and his what he contributed to Star Wars lives on. I mean, you think of the Falcon and Solo and Lando's Falcon with the kind of nod to 2001. And you think of the interiors of the Radis in The Last Jedi or the minimalist quality of Snoke's throne room in The Last Jedi or so much of Rogue One and Starkiller Base, like we mentioned, and the Rebel Base on Dakar. You can feel the spirit of John Barry all throughout those movies. And yeah, he created that Star Wars look that still defines so much of what Star Wars is. Yeah, and what Star Wars continues to be. And I'm sure when The Mandalorian comes out, we're going to see for, you know these familiar shapes and patterns and, and designs that make something feel Star Wars, even if the characters and, and situations are completely different than what you'd seen before. You still kind of, you get that feeling that, okay, this I'm looking at Star Wars. John Barrier was amazing human being. I, I loved working with John and very smart. And John admitted at the time, he said, my world is Barbarella. I love all that fantasy stuff, but he converted to what George wanted. And R2's sort of eye turret is in fact the air conditioning unit from a caravel, that sort of thing. So, you know, they are more interesting than you can imagine or produce in the time available. Every frame in the movie is very much George's. I mean, you know, he's a very, makes a big contribution to the whole, uh, every aspect of the movie. legendary adventure of the past could be as exciting as Star Wars. Here they come. The more you see it, it's where the fun begins. The better it gets. Too fast. Star Wars rated PG starts tomorrow at a theater near you. All right, iTunes reviews. We haven't been able to do these in a while. We got a few. What's our first one? So the first one is by No Age, and it says, Best Star Wars podcast ever. I love listening to these episodes. There is so much enthusiasm and good vibes contained in each episode that it makes me see the world in a warmer light. They share their love of Star Wars with the world without shame. I may not love the prequels as much as they do, but it's so much fun to listen to them talk about it. Well, you know... You, you love what you love. You can't help it. You can't help what you love. So we appreciate you listening to us. So thank you. Thank you, No Age. And this next one is AT3D by Nightmare Engine. Ooh. Spooky. Top shelf, laugh out loud, Star Wars podcasting. My wife has stopped asking what's so funny, and I've stopped trying to explain. A must for any level Star Wars fan Keep up the amazing work, you two. All right. Thank you. Yeah. 
If you listen to the episodes over and over again, eventually they'll get funny. (laughs) All right. right, Lastly, here we have we have Star Wars and Star Wars is good by Predator Minute Zabriskie. If you like listening to hosts who love Star Wars, you enjoy well-produced audio programs and you are looking for a catch all Star Wars podcast, then this is the podcast for you. I have only listened to a few episodes of Blast Points, but even after just those few episodes, I can easily dig into how much I enjoy the show. First, the hosts have a great affinity for everything Star Wars. To gauge the extent of the hosts' fandom, I listen to at least one show covering each of the eras, the OT, the PT, and the ST. Even though I believe it's totally okay to not to like or not like a movie, I tend to skip over shows in which people repeatedly bash on one of the trilogy's eras. That said, the hosts both love everything Star Wars and expound upon what they love about all things Star Wars. They do a great job of showing the listener what can be appreciated about all of the movies, shows, and books. They also interact with each other and their guests with respect and genuine glee. I always feel a bit lighter after I listen to the show. We have Star Wars and Star Wars is good. Bad production stands out chief among issues that turn people away from a show, but this show is immaculately produced. With the innumerable audio drops, both Star Wars and non-Star Wars, the myriad music tracks, especially the Seal Bibble Scatman remix, and the clean... (laughs) That's a deep cut. (laughs) And the clean vocal recordings, no crackles or garbles, the listener can pick up everything easily from a show that both takes its time and moves at a Star Wars-esque pace. Lastly, this is a great catch-all show for anything and everything Star Wars. In just the few episodes I've listened to, I've heard the host discuss the movies, old and upcoming TV shows, canon and legends books, the lost cut, sound effects, various scripts, individual characters, creature design, the toys. The list goes on. Tell us about it. (laughs) I'm tired just thinking about it. And just for clarification, Blast Points has episodes dedicated to each of the aforementioned topics. One of my personal podcast preferences is to listen to shows that focus on one idea topic per show instead of shows that just talk about whatever is on the host's minds. Godspeed, Jason and Gabe. Keep up the great work. Wow. Wow. That was epic. Thank you, Predator Minute Zabriskie. Wow. A lot of love put into this show, so at least one person appreciates it. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, if you listen on some sort of Apple thing, head over there, write a little something like Predator Minute, Nightmare Engine, and No Age Did, and we will read yours on an upcoming show. Thank you. 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 Hi, JJ Abrams here. On behalf of the entire cast and crew of Star Wars Episode 7, thank you. These last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Check us out on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, 
Join the Facebook Blast Points Super Chill Group. Also check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com, with the return of Darthfield. Oh, my God, what's going on? He's got a goose. Who knows what's going on with Darthfield, but it's there anyway. And for 2019, we are starting Forceback Fridays, where we will highlight one of our favorite back episodes. So if you're new to the show and you want to go back and listen to some of the older episodes and you're not sure where to start, check out our Force Back Fridays for some recommendations. New for 2019. We talked about it last week. We now have a Patreon. We got two bonus episodes on there for Patreon subscribers. There's like different tiers to get different stuff. I think if you do the $5 a month, which is the double platinum tier, you get a bonus episode every month and you get uh, a movie commentary every month. And that's not all we're going to do. The 2019 is going to be wacky. So a lot of surprises in store for the Patreon. And I know it's been up for about a week and the reaction's been awesome. And we thank everyone so much. That about wraps up episode number 154. All about John Barry, the production design of Star Wars and some black beans. Still thinking about the black beans. If you mix the sand and the black beans together and you shake it up and then you pour it out on a table, the beans will spell the title of episode nine. Drink your oval team. I, I wouldn't have been mad if that was the code. <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. <laughs> That was a Christmas story reference. I know. I know. <laughs> and I don't know why he was mad, because Ovaltine's good stuff. Yeah, I know. You got the Dakota ring. All right, I'm going to stop it. May the force be with all of